Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If you want to become a United Methodist pastor, if you want to get to do what I do every single Sunday, you have to go to three years of seminary. Through three years of a master's degree, having already earned a bachelor's degree. We want our clergy to be well informed. And when I was in seminary, you have to take a lot of classes. You have to take classes in the New Testament, the Old Testament, theology, practical ministry. I was serving church for, or in a hospital for a year. I had all churches. It's all this stuff. And right exactly midway through your schooling, you have to take a class on American Christianity. You have to learn about what the church was like when it came to this new nation. What it was like for the church to extend out into the frontier. Why there are more denominations in America than there are in the rest of the world. Why all these things happen uniquely here versus everywhere else. I had a great professor, his name is uh, Dr. Grant Wacker. And the end of the class uh, was a huge and very, very difficult final exam. And it was so difficult because he would give us a quote from an American Christian... And we would have to know which American Christian said that thing. So there would be a line on the test that would say, We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. And then we would have to know who said that. And there were a hundred of those quotes on the final exam. So when we went to the final lecture, I was not listening to a thing he said. Because what I was doing was studying all the quotes in my lap while he was talking about something else. I was afraid that I was going to fail the final exam. Dr. Wacker stood up before us that day, and the first thing he said was, I don't want to give you a lecture for our last class. Instead of giving you a lecture, I'd like to preach a sermon. And I thought, great, I really don't have to listen now. Now I can really study. So he started preaching. And to be honest, I didn't listen to anything he said. I didn't listen to the scripture he read. I didn't listen to the sermon because I was so worried about the exam. I was just studying underneath the desk the whole time. And then at the very end, he did something I noticed. He was one of those preacher types who has to hold on as if like the pole was going to take off like a rocket ship. He was always leaning back like this. And he, he preached the whole sermon kind of like this the whole time. And at some point, his body language relaxed. He kind of looked down at his notes and it was clear that he shuffled them away. And then he leaned down on his elbows. And he looked out at all of us. He said, some of you aren't going to remember anything I taught you. And that's okay. Some of you aren't going to remember what I preached about, and that's okay. And I thought, thank God. <laughs> he said, if you hear anything from the class, if you remember anything about my talking to you, I want you to remember this. If you can do anything else with your life, if there's any other thing you could possibly do with your life, you need to drop out of seminary right now, and you need to go do that thing instead. Ministry is a life of misery. It will be very difficult. You will be surrounded by death every day. People will treat you poorly. They won't pay you very well. They'll be mean. They'll be cruel. And it will never, ever stop. If you can do anything else with your life, drop out of school today and go do that thing. But if you can't do anything else, if the call God has placed in your life is so strong that you can't imagine doing anything else with your life, then you have to stay in school. 
You have to study, and you have to give yourself to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In that moment, for me, I mean, I had not listened to anything you said, but I definitely listened to that. And it grabbed me by the collars. And I felt an immense sense of relief. I mean, I think I grew like three sizes in my little chair because I really felt in every part of my body that there was nothing else I could do with my life. That being in ministry, serving God's church, sharing with people the good news that I had received, to be able to share that with as many people as possible was the only thing I wanted to do with my life. And I remember walking, watching Dr. Wacker leave the room, and I had the biggest smile on my face. And I looked around. And as I was growing in my seat, some of my friends were sinking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Because for some of them, they realized, I've made a huge mistake. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to do that. And after Christmas break, a few weeks later, there were about 10 of my friends who didn't come back to school. And I'm grateful that they didn't. I mean, I'm really grateful for Dr. Wacker. I mean, he shared with them what their lives could have been like, and I'm grateful that the ten of them chose to do something else with their life rather than to go into all the suffering that comes with ministry. And I've thought a lot about what Dr. Wacker said over the last decade or so since I heard him say it, and I've really appreciated it because every day I feel more reinforced in my call that being able to work for the church is what I'm supposed to do with my life. But with every passing year, I've realized that my professor was actually dead wrong. He was just completely dead wrong. Now, he wasn't wrong about expectations and all that other sort of stuff about the church, but he was wrong about this. The way he talked about the, the misery of ministry, he made it out as if there was only two types of Christians in the world. Pastors and everybody else. He made it out as if the expectations placed on pastors are different than everyone else. And that is just simply not true. It was also wrong because being a pastor is a privilege. It is a joy to get to be there in the midst of people's lives when they need it most. But it's not just about what pastors get to do and lay people don't get to do. It's for every single one of us. Because Christians are different. Paul writes, we are a people set apart. Now, that language has been problematic because sometimes we think, oh, we're set apart because we're above the world or we're better than the world or we're better than our neighbors or we're better than our siblings. No, Christians are not people who are above. We're just set apart because we know a little bit more about who we really are. We're able to take a look in the mirror and really wrestle with our truest identities. Whenever we pin ourselves up against the world, it just makes us feel like we're right and they're wrong and we're better and they're not. And then what winds up happening is we think we're going to go here and they're going to go there. <laughs> but that's not what Paul means when he says we are set apart for the gospel of God. Because Paul didn't get to choose his life. This is a guy who was walking out to Damascus one day and he got knocked over and God said, I'm going to change your life forever. And he was the worst person for the job. He was arrogant. He was self-righteous. He was rude. And he was trying to kill Christians for being Christians. I mean, think about that. Really wrestle with God says, this guy, he's going to be the one to share the gospel with the world. My enemy. I mean, it's like, it's like taking a racist and say, hey, you've got to go work for racial equity. Or taking someone who's beaten his wife and say, hey, you've got to go become a feminist. 
You take the worst person for the job and you stick them right in it. That's what God says Paul has to do. Paul didn't get a choice. And the best part of all is that Paul always said, it's not what I'm doing, but it's what Christ is doing through me. That is a far cry from, if you can do anything else with your life, go do that thing instead. I mean, can you imagine if the conversation on Damascus was like, hey, Paulie, I know you've been doing a lot of bad things. I know you've been killing people who follow me. I don't want to talk about that. I want you to come work for me. Now, if you can do anything else with your life, you can go do that thing. But if you can't, then you can come work for me. I'll put you in the family business. Paul didn't get a choice. And frankly, as Christians, none of us get a choice. It's not about whether this is something we want to do. When God grabs hold of you, your life gets upended forever and ever, and you can't look back. The good news of Jesus Christ grabbed Paul and refused to let him go. Grab me. Refuse to let me go. I think and believe grabbed each of you and refused to let you go as well. Because all of us, whether we're Paul or Taylor or someone in the pews, we've all heard at some point in our life, you're not good enough. You're not going to make it. You need to fix this or that or the other. But what God says to us, what God said to Paul, what God has said to me, what God says to all of you is, you can't do it on your own. I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to take care of those things you can't take care of. Because that is what Romans is all about. It's not a list of all the things we have to do or we shouldn't do. It's not a litany of how hard it is to be a Christian. The whole letter to the church in Rome is about how Jesus Christ does for you what you could not do for yourselves. <coughs> we are set apart because God has shared with us the knowledge that God is going to do something remarkable and transform the very fabric of the cosmos. Paul had a burden, if we want to talk about it that way, but his burden was to know that it wasn't up to him. And that is a real burden, because we want to be in control. We want to be able to fix all the things in our life. We want to be able to fix the world. And God reminds us again and again in Scripture that in the end, the only thing we really do is make things worse. We go back to the old choices and the old decisions, the old prejudices, the old knee-jerk reactions. God says, no, if you come to me, Bring your burdens, and I will give you rest. And that's what grabbed Paul. He got to share this good news throughout the whole world about what Jesus Christ was willing to do. He talks about the obedience of faith. It's not about being obedient, having to do this, that, or the other. It's being obedient to the fact that we're not in control. That God is ultimately the one who's the author of our salvation. And that's what makes us different. And part of what makes us different is that we no longer believe that we belong to ourselves, that we're not left to our own devices. We believe that we belong to Jesus, that he has taken us and our burdens upon his shoulders, that we belong to Jesus, who's taken every one of our wrong decisions and every one of our sins and nailed it to the cross instead. We belong to Jesus, whose manger and his birth we will mark on Christmas Eve and whose return we wait with anticipation. That's what Advent is all about. It's not what the world tells us Advent is about. Advent is about looking into the darkness. It's about death and judgment and heaven and hell. It's about being able to look really deep in the mirror and say, Gosh, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I am in need of your own redemption. That's what the gospel is about. When we talk about hell, we think about we know hell is a place somewhere else. The problem with that is we neglect to realize that hell is very much real for people right now. 
There are people who wake up every day and they don't feel like they're living in heaven on earth. They feel like they're in the bowels of hell. They're afraid. They're alone. They're weak. They're hungry. They're poor. Part of the message of the good news is how can we enter into the hell of other people and give them a taste of heaven? And that's hard work. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy. But it's good news. I, this, is my, this is my soapbox. This is the ditch I'm going to die in, and I'll be happy to die in this ditch. If the good news doesn't sound like good news, then it's bad news. And if all we ever hear as Christians is if you don't get yourself together, you're going to burn forever. That does not sound like good news to me. You know what sounds like good news? You are already forgiven. That's the gospel. It's already on the cross. It's there in the manger. You are already forgiven. Only thing you have to do is accept it. What better news is there than that? We offer this to you in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Heaven and hell filled with forgiven sinners, just like us. As we prepare to come to the table, I ask that you please join me in prayer. Lord, in your strange and infinite wisdom, you've called upon a bunch of sinners to hang out with each other, to break bread, to share a cup, to share signs of peace, to sing, to receive. For Lord, as people who gather together, we recognize and realize that part of our gathering is your work upon us to shine light in the darkness of our own lives and in the lives of others. So we pray, Lord. We pray for the strength on this last Sunday of Advent to look in the mirror of our own lives, to see how bad we really are, but to also be grateful that you've come for us anyway. And all God's people say, Amen. As a bunch of forgiven sinners, it's good to be here, but even better for us to stand to find more forgiven sinners in your midst and share with them signs of Christ's peace and love.